All right. I love that guy. I, uh, I've got a couple of sponsors here that have relocated from the northeast to eastern Tennessee, and it's really, it's really good to be here. And um, my name's Charlie Parker. I'm alcoholic. Sober since March 22nd of 1985, and for that I'm truly grateful. If I make it to Wednesday, it'll be 38 years. And believe me, I was not a guy that when I got here, they went, oh, this brother's going to make it. You know, I, he's solid. You know, I, if I can do this deal, anybody can. Let me turn on my timer, give you all a little hope. Um, it's just so good to be back with my people, you know, I, uh. I've been I've been off the road a little bit, and we'll probably get around to talking about that. Uh, but my my spot, my home group is the primary purpose group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, in Austin, Texas, we meet on Tuesday nights at 7:30 at 2701 South Lamar. If you're ever in town, we invite you to come see us. And a lot have it's uh, it's been it's been really neat. And then we have a Zoom meeting on Wednesday night, and. Uh, I'll go ahead and say our Zoom information is 630-577-473, no password. And I'm seeing a lot of people here, This, you know, it's, it's, some of the people, you know how you've seen people in these little boxes for the last couple, you know, to, to get to see Raquel and Colette and Bobette and, and Rima and a lot of those people that we've been seeing for a couple of years is a real treat. Some of them are taller than I thought they were going to be, so, you know, but, but um, I want to thank the committee and anybody who had anything to do with getting me here, and Glenn and Jane and, and Ben. I met Ben at the usual suspects, and then Shauna picked us up at the airport, and, and we're just getting everything going, and, you know, we got a great room and a nice gift bag when we got in there, and, I mean, I got just so many friends in this room, I don't even know how, how to get it going, and... I'll probably talk about the tapers at some point, but Lee is the best there is. And, uh, and, and um, there he is back there. Be sure and get by his table. But, you know, um, my job is to talk about step three. And it's just so great to have all these great speakers this weekend coming out of their own experience, talking about these steps. And, and I got a little joke I like to tell to get everything going. And, it speaks to that coming out of our own experience. Um, some of you have heard this joke before. Some of you have heard me tell this joke before. But it's a good joke, and I like the way I tell it. So um, so here it comes. It's, 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 it's about this guy who's driving along one day, and he's passing by this farmhouse, and he sees a sign on the gatepost that says, Talking Dog for Sale. He can't stand it. Goes up there and he goes, uh, you got a talking dog for sale? And the guy goes, yeah, he's around back. And he wanders around back. There's this old red hound dog laying there. And he looks at the dog and he goes, so you can talk? And the dog says, well, I certainly can. And he goes, my God, how did that happen? And he goes, well, it's actually a very interesting story. He said, when I was young, I started picking up some language skills from the humans that I interacted with. And, and over time, I started working with slang and colloquialisms and some of the nuances of the language. And I really had a fabulous life. I had a 19-year career in the Drug Enforcement Administration. I was able to infiltrate some scenes no human agent would have ever gotten into. And he said, I've traveled the world, stayed in some of the finest hotels. But more interesting than me, some of my pups have developed foreign language skills. And and uh, I have two pups right now that are in the United Nations building as international diplomats. And the guy goes, my God, it's been fascinating talking to you. And he goes back up front where that old farmer's laying there, sitting there, and he goes, man, how much do you want for that dog? The guy goes, I don't know, 40 bucks? And he's like, why on earth would you sell a fabulous dog like that for $40? The farmer thinks for a second, and he goes, none of that crap he told you is true. You know, I mean... <laughs> and it's kind of like that around here, you know. Um, 
if you're not coming out of your own experience, it doesn't matter how how good the talk is. You know, uh, we can smell Lina Bull from a mile away. I'm, I want to get talk. It started. My, I'm talking about the third step, and I thought, uh, can't you just tee it up perfectly? I I, I I couldn't be happier with with your step one. You know, in, in my regular talk. Uh, just where I tell my story. You may have heard me talk about having my biggest spiritual awakening when I was 17 years sober. I've been saying it for a long time. And, uh, and sometimes it'd be like, well, what does that mean? You know, I mean, how? Well, what are you doing different in the last 21 years than you did that first 17 years? And, and, you know, a whole lot of it is, is, um, in this third step. And, um, because briefly about my story, and I mean briefly, it's, I came to AA when I was 28 years old. And from the time I was 16 to the time I was 28, I was 100% devoted to getting loaded. I mean, I realize that rhymed today. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, I wasn't part-time. Uh, it, was, it was, and not everybody's story is like that, but my, my story was... I'd like to tell you that I drank a fifth of whiskey every day from the time I was 16 until I was 20, but that wouldn't be true. But what I can tell you, and this isn't everybody in AA, what I can tell you is that I never once turned down the opportunity to get loaded for any, under any circumstances. There was never a time when you'd, you know, pull something out or open and I'd say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, man, it's my mom's birthday today, you know, or, and so I was like, we're just going to have to work it out later. But, you know, the, the briefest description of my drinking and using career is that the guys that I, drank, that I drank with thought I did way too much dope. And the guys that I used with were shocked by my drinking, you know. So everybody kind of thought uh, Charlie was getting a little too loaded, you know. And, uh, and um, I'm a big believer in singleness of purpose. You know, and, and I don't, in, in an AA meeting, I don't talk about, I talk about alcoholism because that's what we're identifying as, you know, like it says on page 18, until such an identification is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. That, that identification and singleness of purpose is so important that out of all the 12-step programs that are out there, the only difference in any of them is the first half of the first step and the middle part of the 12-step, you know, what I'm powerless over. And who I carry the message to. If it wasn't for that, we'd all meet in one room and it'd just be one one big deal. But, you know, um, we're really fortunate in Austin that we have so many. I, I live in Austin, Texas, by the way, y'all. I uh, forgot, forgot, forgot to tell you that. But we're, we're really fortunate in Austin that, that we have so many different fellowships that Addicts don't have to hide out in AA meetings pretending to be alcoholics where they're never going to identify. And I also feel really, infor- really fortunate to identify in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous as much as I do, you know, because you are my people. Uh, I love this group of people so much. I, uh, I was telling Glenn and Jane before the meeting that one time, you know how they talk in meditation and stuff about, you know, go to your, go to a happy place or a mental place in meditation. And, you know, it's always a riverbed or something. And I was at the Desert powwow in, in California, and it was before the meeting. You know, 3,000 people are talking. Nobody's listening. And the chatter in that room was such a comfort to me. I mean, because that is... Those are my people, and I don't, I don't, uh, I don't take it for granted. I feel very fortunate that I didn't identify as much as as I did because I think it carried me for a long time when step work wasn't, you know, a huge part of what was going on, and you know, because well, I, I came to AA and and uh, and I worked the steps. I got a sponsor while I was still in treatment, and I worked the steps with him, and I thought that I was a big book guy. I mean, I went to Tuesday night meetings, big book study meetings. I, you know, I really kind of thought, but you know what, then I'm going to talk about Mark Houston a little later in the, in the talk, but 
If you don't hear me say anything else tonight, hear me say, get a hold of some Mark Houston CDs and listen to him. Because I can't tell you how many people have told me Mark changed my life and I never even met him. I just listened to him on CDs. One of the things Mark used to say, though, was, how do you know what you don't know? And I mean, that'll give you a brain cramp if you think about it. It's, you know, it's like, how could I possibly have known what I was missing in those early years of uh, Because I, I was going to meetings, there was some God involved in it. I mean, it wasn't like I was doing nothing those first 17 years. I was very much in the fellowship, very much about staying sober and trying to sponsor guys with God know what, God knows what. But in the 12 and 12, it says we can have faith in God and still keep Him out of our lives. And the way that happens for a guy like me is I'll go, oh man, God is awesome. I mean, God is the best. You know, thank God for God. You know, but... but but I don't need him for this deal with my wife, you know, and I don't need him for this thing at work. I don't need him for this thing with the Internal Revenue Service. I don't need him, you know, with this scam I'm pulling on the insurance company. But if I ever need him, I mean, I'll bring him right in, you know. But, you know, in the meantime, take a knee, we'll let you know if we're going to send you in, you know. And, and, and I'm, so I'm sober. But I'm in constant collision with somebody or something all the time. And, I, you know, and, and I wound up blowing up some marriages. You know, I was in one marriage and, and I, it blew up. Now, Katie's my best friend and still is. Uh, Katie's going to be speaking Sunday morning on 10 and 11. I love her with all my heart. And uh, we were best friends for 20 years, and then we've been a couple for 20 years. So she's getting to watch all this going on, you know, and she wasn't real fond of the 19-year-old girlfriend and, you know, and stuff. But I didn't care. I mean, it was like she was my kid's sister, you know, and, and the more I bugged her, the more it tickled me, you know. And uh, But, you know, like, so I blew, I blew up this one marriage, and I waited the appropriate amount of time to get into another relationship, you know. 16 days, and, and, uh, and, and then, you know, uh, like a couple of years later, I've blown that one up, and I can't figure out why things aren't going according to my values, you know, because I was, I was only going to get married one time, and, and that's what I think, I should tell you about my voice, it's, it's not going to get a whole lot better than this, but uh, we've carved around on it, and, and uh, this if y'all can bear with it, I'll get through the hour, but I won't be hitting any high notes up here today. And, and, but, you know, I kept, I, had, I kept hitting walls in sobriety. And, I, and then at about seven years, I had this flat period, uh, I called it. Uh, it's really what I've learned to call it now was untreated alcoholism. But I didn't know it at the time. But I'd pulled back a little bit because I'd had so much calamity in those first seven years. And I thought, you know what? I've tried it your way. Um, you know, rigorous honesty in my butt. You know, let's, uh, I'll show you what self-will will get me. And I didn't even know I was making that decision. And, and so um, I, I went along like that for a while. And there was some dishonesty creeping into my life. I got into a dishonest marriage. And uh, it was... Well, the most dishonest thing about it was me, um, because uh, she didn't get what she thought she was getting, you know. And and so along at about that time, and i got to make this really fast, uh, I was in a plane crash. We chartered a plane to fly from the Hamptons back into New York City, and, and the engine quit. Uh, 3,500 feet in the air in a Cessna 210 with retractable landing gear, and we had to put it down in the water at night. That has affected me in a lot of ways. But one of them was, I got out of that marriage, and I came back to Austin, and I said, uh, I knew something was wrong. And I called up John Henry, this local guy there in Austin, and I said, hey, Larry, how you doing, buddy? I, I, I called up John Henry, and I said, John Henry, brother, I'm so self-centered, I, I can't even be in a conversation with anybody. I know this won't apply to any of y'all. But, I mean, if I run into somebody, you know, I just have to force myself to go, Hey, Glenn, how are the kids? You know, and act like I give a flip about the answer, because I didn't. You know, I mean, 
it was all me and me and me and me. And, and, uh, and, and I didn't realize it was mentioned in our book. But I started, I got with Mark Houston and, and Myers. About that time I met Myers and Chris and Mark Houston. And, and things started happening on a whole different level. And this is where we come to step three. Because if there are any mistakes being made in Alcoholics Anonymous, I think one of the biggest mistakes that's commonly being made in AA is going from, are you alcoholic? This was my experience my first time through the steps. Do you believe in God? Are you willing to even consider believing in God? And if so, get you down on your knees and do the third step prayer. And then this my first time it was that and then my my first inventory was kind of a confession of, of my you know, stuff I really felt bad about. And then six and seven whatever. And and and, <laughs> and, and then I started um, making amends. But I was amazed before I was halfway through. And and uh, and that list has a way of finding its way into the drawer, you know. And, and I'm just cruising along, and I don't know what's going on with me. But, but um, you know, I uh, when I when I had that plane crash and the things started going differently, I started wanting a different experience. So now here's where it changed, you know. And the reason I love talking about step three, whew, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit tonight, folks. But we're no, I got something right here, baby. Thank you. Um, a little bit of a rough week, and we may get around to talking about that. Now, there'll be times in my talk where I'll say we're going to talk about that later. And what that means is that this ain't the appropriate time to bring that up. But I got a little ADD working up here, and uh, when I tell you we're going to get back to it later, we're probably not coming back. You know, I just... <laughs> I always get real excited when I actually circle back around to one, you know. But but here's here's where it changed, you know, because one time Katie was giving a talk out in Arizona, and I'm with her, and there was some time in the schedule, and the people putting it on said, "Hey, would you like to do a workshop while you're here?" I said, "Yeah, you know, I like to do one on step three. If I can get an hour to spend with somebody in AA." and I want to make an impact on their sobriety, the biggest source in my experience has been a, a new understanding of pages 60 to 63. And, and uh, But this guy came up, and he, a guy came up to me before that workshop, and he goes, how do you do a workshop on step three? And I said, well, what do you mean? He had, he had 41 years of sobriety and lived up in Alaska. And he goes, well, I mean, what is there other than step three? And I said, brother, I hope, I really hope you come. You know, because I could tell that his experience with the third step had been like my first experience, where it's the prayer and it's the prayer and it's the prayer. Or you hear a lot of people say the third step is just a decision. I don't feel that way. I, um, there is a decision involved. But it's not just a decision that goes through the rest of the work. It's a pivotal turning point in our AA program on page 60 that I missed for a long time. And, you know, and I used to be embarrassed about talking about how much I missed until I realized how much company I had. You know, I mean, it's, it's, there's a whole lot of, you know, and, and, you know, and the thing about it is, one of the reasons I figured out that I didn't, that I missed it for so long, because I'd read this book more than once when all this was going on. But one of the, I learned this term called a confirmation bias. And what a confirmation bias is is I'm, when I'm reading it, I'm not looking for new information. And I don't know this is going on, but I'm looking for confirmation of ways that I'm already right. So I'm reading the book. I'm going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Jay Walker, you know, and 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 you know, and this is what I always say, and you know, and and then whatever doesn't fit into my current belief just goes right over my head, and and, and it doesn't matter how many times I read it, and uh, you know, uh, the thing is, 
when you come at me with something that differs from my belief system, or God forbid you come at me with something that differs from what my beloved first sponsor taught me, my ego goes into self-defense. And now it's not even about the topic anymore. It's the ego fighting for its life. You know, and, and I don't want to do it. You know, I always say, a lot of times I meet people that it's like, I really want things to change, but I don't want to do anything different. You know, I'm, you know, and it's like, you know, can you work that out for me? You know, and, and you know, because sometimes, you know, when we, if we run up against this, and there's some people that, you know, have been around for a long time, you know, that'll laugh it all off. I go, oh, I know Charlie's going to tell us how we're working the steps wrong or, you know, or something like that. And I don't know whether they are or not, but I was, you know. I mean, so let's take a look at it. Because, you know, the book takes this huge right turn on page 60, and I missed it for a long time, you know. And uh, on page 60, I'm going to go to the book for a while now. It says... Right where Kent left off. Couldn't have been better, Kent. After the A, B, and C. Now, what I'm talking about, what I did before was I went right from A, B, and C to the third step prayer. Well, this is what it says. And you know what the first line is after A, B, and C? It says, being convinced we were now at step three. Being convinced of what? What Kent was just talking about. A, that I'm alcoholic. And I, uh, and I cannot manage my own life. And now, by now, we know what that means. Physical allergy, mental obsession, mental blank spot, all the things that make me powerless over that decision to not drink and be that no human's going to help me, including me, and, and see that God could and would if he were sought. And right after that, it says being convinced of A, B, and C. We, we, being convinced we were at step three. Which tells me that A, B, and C must do a pretty good job of summing up one and two. It says, which is, we decided to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand Him. Um, I believe a lot in turning the statements in the big book into questions. But here's one where it'd be a really fair question for the guy I'm working with to say, Okay, uh, turn your will and your life over to the care of God. What do you mean by that? And what do you want me to do? You know, and it spends the next two pages talking about what we mean. And then it switches over to what we do. And I missed all that for a long time. Because the next paragraph says there's a requirement to step three. It says, uh, don't worry about me. I just don't have a whole lot of wind, folks. But... Um, no, I'll stand up. Thanks, honey. It says that the first requirement is that Charlie be convinced that Charlie's... Well, it doesn't say that, but... Uh, <laughs> that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Now, not only was I not convinced of that, that, that line had never touched me because we went right from... See that God could and what if we sought to the third step prayer. Well, so it's going to spend the next two pages talking about what we mean. I'm going to try to blast through this because i got a lot of stuff I want to talk about. Ow, ow, ow. Excuse me. No, baby, I'll be all right. And do what? I know you want to help me, honey, but I just... Uh, you want to come sit by me? Well, come on. Everybody, this is my wife, Katie Parker. <laughs> I, I, I like that, Glenn. Uh, it says, first requirement is that I be convinced of my life. And it says, on that basis, what basis? The basis of I'm running this show. The, the basis of self-will. Now, Bill works a lot with that term basis and basic and basically. And what it means is the, the fundamental principle of something or the underlying foundation of something is its basis. And when the basis of my life is I'm running this deal, 
It says I'm almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though my motives were good. See, now, that's troubling. Well, I can't even trust my motives, you know. And, and it says, and it goes on to talk about this actor. Wants to run the whole show, arrange the lights, the ballet, the orchestra, scenery. Anybody ever read that and go, what are they even talking about, you know, with this actor? Well, I didn't realize for a long time, but the reason this guy is such a pain in the butt is because he's not the director. He's just one of the actors, you know, in this play. But he wants to be the director, and he's trying to run the whole thing. And here's where it gets in. It's because first we talked about my motives, and then it switches over to talk about this delusion I have that if only... My arrangements would stay put. If only people would do as I wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including me, would be happy. I mean, I might be trying to create Charlie Topia, but you're all invited, you know. And, and it says in trying to make this, this is what we call the, the toolkit of self-will. And it says in trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But on the other hand, I might, I might be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. This is me trying to get you to do what I want. On the other hand, I might be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. When would I be that way? When I'm not getting my way the other way, you know? And so I'm like this halfback in the open field, juking, you know, I'll try nice, you know, and, but, you know, like, I might be able to yell at this guy and get him to do what I want, but no, Ralph won't play that way. So he's going to get, oh, man, Ralph, you're the one guy that understands what I'm trying to do, you know, and, you know, if I had more friends like you, that sort of thing. But what usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. Most of my... Ten-step calls with sponsees could start right here, you know, where you go, let me guess, show didn't come off very well, you know. <laughs> well, no, it didn't, you know. Let me, let me tell you what she said, you know. But So I become more, uh, I become more gracious, as the case may be, or more demanding. Still, it doesn't suit me. Admitting I might be somewhat at fault, I'm sure that other people are more to blame. I'm a victim of the delusion that I can seize satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I only manage well. And everybody else can tell it. Ray Charles can see what I'm trying to do. You know, I mean, I, and, and, but I don't think so. You know, I think I'm smooth. And, and it says, our actor is self centered, egocentric. Now, when you say selfish and self-centered, I thought you meant stingy and conceited. But it doesn't mean that I think too much of myself or too little of myself. I just think about me too much. You know, and, and it goes on to say, um, on 62 it says, something really strange for a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. This is that turn I was talking about. It says, I'll be all right. Okay. Give me just a second, y'all. I've been having some kidney pain. It says, selfishness, self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, that's okay. Thank you, Brenda. Fear, self-delusion, self-seeking. I'm driven by these things. I'm not choosing to act this way. I'm driven by these things. And it says, uh, I step on people's toes and they retaliate for no reason, it seems like to me. But I invariably find I've made decisions based on self, which later placed me in a position to be harmed. Here's one of the biggest promises in the book. It says, so our troubles, we think, are basically of our own makeup. 
It's a big move to get a guy to go from my problems are coming at me to my problems are coming from me. We can really work from, from that point. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-well-run riot. Right now I'm thinking, I'm not a, an extreme example, right? You know, I mean, <laughs> maybe a little bit, certainly not as much as Larry, but uh, and it goes on. That there's this drunk trap after that says, though he usually doesn't think so. You know, and so it says, there often seems no way of getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, couldn't live up to them. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness by, by wishing or trying on our own power. I can't get over self myself. And I can't quit playing God without God. And, and now... Up to now, you remember he said, what do we mean by that and just what do we do? We've been talking about what we mean. You think I could sit down? I think we could get you a big chair. I'm sorry. No, I'll sit right there. Oh, you want to sit here and I'll just move the yeah. mic? Perfect. We'll do some teamwork here. Oh, oh thanks, honey. Is she the best? Yeah. We'll get a chance to talk a little more about what's been going on. Um, but, well, that's a lot better. Oh, good. All right. So, now it switches from what we mean to what we do. You remember when the guy said, just what do you mean by that? And just what do we do? Well, now it's, it's been talking about what we mean. And now it's going to switch over to what we do. And it says, this is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It's easier to get an alcoholic to quit drinking than it, <laughs> than it is to get one of us to quit playing God. You know, I, you know, I, I, But why would I want to do that? Because it says, next three words, it says it didn't work. You know, if you run into shows working out real good for you, rock on. You know, I mean, we, got, we don't want to interfere with that. But if you're in constant collision with something or somebody, we got something for you. You know, and, and it says, next we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. Now, that's the decision. In the third step is right there. It says, uh, next we decided that hereafter in this drama life, God's going to be the director. Now this play we're talking about has a director and I'm just, I get to just be one of the actors, right? And, uh, boy, sitting down was a really good decision. <laughs> um, and it says, um, he is the principal. We are his agents. Mark used to love talking about being an agent of God, empowered to work on his behalf. He's the father. We are his children. Most good ideas are simple. And his concept, what concept? The concept that, that I'm no longer running the show. It's amazing. I apologize to everybody over here that can't see me. but Oh, you got the camera. Yeah, see, there you go. Hey. <laughs> Boy, you're right, honey. The camera does add 60 pounds. <laughs> But what position is that we're talking about taking is, is that I'm no longer in management. You know, have you heard the term, uh, that's above my pay grade? You know, I mean, it's like, that's a management level decision, and I'm no longer in management. You know, and I get to turn a lot of that stuff over to God. And it turns out just a whole bunch of stuff is above my pay grade. You know, it's a disappointing amount of stuff. <laughs> Is, is above my pay grade. But listen to what it says. It says, when we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things happened. You know, what position? The position that God's in charge, and that suits me just fine. 
because I've been getting my brains beat out out here trying to run the show. And this is such a huge difference. I, I hope we talk about it. But but it, between drink and don't drink, and we're, we're going to get around to talking about it, but it says we had a new employer. Now, here's the thing. This is so important. This is what we call the pivot point in Alcoholics Anonymous because everything we've done in the work up to now has been leading to this point. And everything we're going to do from here forward refers back to this point. I talk about it sometimes like a, a hub city for an airline. Like we flew through Charlotte today. And Charlotte's a hub for American Airlines. And if you look at their route map, there's lines going back to Charlotte or, or uh, Atlanta or no Dallas, that sort of thing. Well, it's kind of like that in the book. There's all these references back to this, what I call the deal. Because the deal that we talked about is over here where it says, I, I'm, I'm going to quit playing God. And, you know, and over on page 46, it says, We find that God doesn't make too hard terms for those who seek Him. I'll left my timer up um, um, I can talk for a minute, y'all, so I, I better get that timer back over here. We've done weekends on, on step three, you know, and, and it's so funny when they. A guy came up and he goes, this guy's wife did an hour on step three one time and never even got to the third step prayer. And, you know, and I'm thinking we do that all the time. But to somebody whose entire experience with the third step is the third step prayer, that's remarkable. You know, and, um, but uh, it says God doesn't make too hard terms for those that seek him. And here's the terms of the deal. The deal is I'm going to quit playing God. But the terms of the deal are right here at the top of page 63. And it says, we had a new powerful, a new employer. Being all powerful, this is God's part of the deal. He provides what we need. Does that sound okay? And then that's his. And then under two very simple terms, that I stay close to him and perform his work well. Well, everything we're going to do from here on out is about one of those two things. It's either about staying close to God and performing His or performing His work well, you know. And when we get into the the vigorous co course of action, what I call steps four through nine, or arguably four through ten, it's all about um, getting unblocked, you know, when it, when it says performance work well. It turns out I can't stay close to this power until I get close to this power. And I can't get close to this power when I'm blocked. So what we're going to try to do is, you know, remove, I got this pipeline where God's on one end and I'm on the other, but my pipeline is clogged with a lot of the stuff they're going to talk about in four and five, you know. And I mean, I'm just trying in the initial pass through to remove enough of what's in that pipeline that there can be some flow of grace between me and this power, you know. And, and, and so it says, stay close to Him and perform His work well. Established on such a footing. I remember when we talked about footing and basis and and uh, fundamental principle and that sort of thing what well, says on because I was on this um, basis of, of uh, I'm running a thing you know and now we're on, established on this new footing like it talks about in the fear inventory where it says the basis of trusting and relying upon God it says also and we become you know it's funny I got this one guy that I sponsor that's such a knucklehead. And, uh, and I love this guy with all my heart. You know, Chris, you know who I'm talking about, the guys. And, and, uh, and when he came to me, I'm trying to lay this stuff out. And he goes, you know, this selfishness that you describe, I don't have it. And I said, go on. And, and he goes, well, I just, I mean, I was an honest drug dealer, and I wanted to put that on the chalkboard, you know, and go, let's unpack that sentence, you know, but, uh, but uh, about a year later, my phone rings, and I can tell you this was 11 years ago, because he, I answered the phone, and he says, 
When does the selfishness stop? I thought about it and I said, you know, I don't know the answer to that, brother, but I know it's more than 27 years, you know, <laughs> because it's still all over me, you know. And, and, you know, when we talk about self with the new guy or the sometimes not-so-new guys, they nod their head like they know what we're talking about. They don't know what we're talking about, you know, because at 30, almost 38 years of sobriety, I'm still blown away by the level of selfishness in my default thinking, you know. And, and, and it says, um, I become, but the book never promises that self is going to go away. It says we become less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. Now, I don't know why they got to call them little plans and designs. <laughs> I mean, I got some big stuff going on, you know. But it says, um, more and more, we become interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. Give, give, give. That becomes what it's, what it's all about. And it says, as we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, we became conscious of his presence. And, you know, I mean, a... Uh, um, I'm going to come back to that last line because now we come to this affirmation prayer of the third step based on everything we've been learning up to now. So now the decision is not in the prayer. It was made on the page before we decided we're going to quit playing God and we've got this new awareness of self. And then, then we do the third step prayer where says, I offer myself to you to build with me and do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Because the first time I heard that, it just sounded like a bunch of churchy talk, you know. I mean, bondage of self, you know. Katie thought it meant something completely different, but um, <clears throat> you, you got to be careful throwing that word around. But um, and it says, um, "Relieve me of the bondage of self." Why? So, so I'm doing better. No, it says. That, um, that I may better do your will. You know, take away my difficulties. Why? So I can chill and watch my beloved Dallas Cowboys? Uh, uh, no, it says take away my difficulties that victory over them would bear witness to those I would help of your power, your love, and your way of life. It all becomes about helping the new guy, carrying a message, having a demonstration, as I used to say, of this power. And it says, um, may I do thy will always. And we thought, well, well before taking this step. One other thing is, this self-peace, it just changes everything. I mean, it changed my whole program because it changes it from there's a guy in, in my crew that I've known since I was in my first year of sobriety and um, great guy but he, he kind of came up in another fellowship and he, what he was hearing there was don't use no matter what don't drink no matter what and that works I mean Right up till it quits working, you know, and 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 he he came in, and this is such a powerful message for two groups of people. I seem to hit with two groups. One is people that have been around the rooms of AA, and they're not doing very well. You know, we were in, uh, I don't want to say where we were, but Katie was speaking, I was with her, and this guy came up to me after the talk, and he says, can we talk? I said, sure, yeah. And he goes, uh, and we're still standing there. And he goes, I got 16 years of sobriety. And he goes, and I'm not thinking about drinking, but I can't shake this thought of killing myself. That's the power of untreated alcoholism. And to be able to tell that guy that there's more available than what he's been experiencing is a mighty message. I mean, and the other group, I'm sorry, 
I'm liable to cry like a little girl in a pink dress up here. Uh, uh. The other uh, people I seem to be drawn to are people that have been coming in and out of AA for 18 years. And they're coming back thinking, what's going to be different this time? You know, I've been, because you know, for a lot of people, going back to AA means quitting drinking and going back to those meetings. And they're like, I've tried that 97 times. What's going to be different this time? And to be able to tell that guy that there's more available, because what happened with, with Zane was, he goes, I, he goes, I have no idea that this program was about me. And, and it, it was coming from me. And, and it blows this self-peace. We call it the second surrender. Because the first surrender in AA is the surrender to booze and whatever else brought me in, into the rooms of AA. And it's somewhat easy to surrender when a gorilla's got his foot on your neck. You know? I mean, but this self-peace... The second surrender is the surrender to self as the root of my problems. They saw it when they were writing the book. I didn't see it when I was reading the book. And, and it, now it becomes not just about drink, don't drink. It becomes this massive recovery picture of how do I show up? How do people experience me? What's it like to be married to me? What's it like for me to be your father? What's it like for uh, me to be your son? What's it like for the guys that work for me and the guys that work with me? And, and all this stuff. And Ten Steps become about the way that self is manifesting out in the world today. And, uh, you know, it's funny that I went from a guy that missed 60 to, three, 60 to 63 for so long, and now my poor sponsees are going, oh, no. I got a sponsor that's only read three pages out of the big book, you know. Because I mean, <laughs> that's all we ever talk about, you know. And, and you know, so, so if it's kind of amazing. You know, if I missed self in the third step, you know, and, and, and I did. Then when you get over and you're doing the inventory, I don't want to step on the, the four-step process, but when, we, when we're when we doing this and we carry it into this vigorous course of action, on 64, it says, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure, and it says, you know, as, and it says, being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us. And I got to ask myself, am I convinced of that? Because if you turn that around, self manifested in various ways, now my inventory process becomes about the various ways that self shows up. You know, and then, and then I, I missed it there. And then you get to the end of that chapter, how it works, and it says, I think it's on page 71, it says, We hope you're convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from Him. You know, just right over my head, you know. And then, and then when you get in, into the eighth step, on page 76, it, it says, in, in the middle of the page, it says, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's, got, it's still on. Yeah. Hi, I'm Charlie. I'm alcoholic. I, you know, yeah. <laughs> Um, in the eighth step, it says, we attempt to sweep away the debris which is accumulated out of our effort to live life on self-will and run the show ourselves. So now even the amends process is, is looking like an... I mean, it seems like it's all over the book. Chris, the same guy I was talking about earlier, he goes, wouldn't it be funny if one day we're sitting around and we go... <laughs> Remember back in, you know, two thousand teens when we were all about that self thing. I mean, we were way off, you know. I mean, but but, but it seems like it's had a lot of holding power, you know, for the last twenty weeks. I mean, twenty years, you know. It's a tempt to sweep away, and then you know the tenth step becomes about reoccurrences of self and how it manifests. You know, going back to sixty-two, it says. Above everything, I'll never forget sitting with Mark Houston one day. 
And in that, it says, when it talks about an extreme example of self-will run right, I wish I had time to do this little graphic. I think I do. Imagine that... Oh, gosh. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, so, imagine that this screen up here is the entire... When we talk about... Uh, a self, uh, extreme example of self-will and right. Imagine that this entire screen right here signifies the entire population of the United States. All right? That's all of us in that little deal right there. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go in this bottom left-hand corner and we're going to build a 20-foot-tall chain-link fence with razor ribbon and barbed wire. And, that's, and we're going to go out into the normal population and we're going to herd up all the people that are uh, self-will run riot. right? Not just a little selfish, but self-will run 17-year-old boys, right in the fence. You know, and, and you know. And, you know, and, and, and so now, are you getting an idea of the population inside the fence? It's all people that are self-will run riot. Now, we're going to go inside the fence, and we're going to pluck out the extreme examples. Now, these are the people that are driving the other self-will run riot people crazy, you know? <laughs> and, and we're going to pluck all those people out, Right? Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know? <laughs> and the thing about it is, I don't think I belong in the fence. You know? I mean, in fact, when you come to get me, I think, okay, I understand. It looked bad there for a minute, but you've heard my story now. And you realize that I don't belong in here with these other knuckleheads, you know. And they're going to let me know. No, they're like, you're killing everybody, you know. I mean, because, because, you know, so, I mean, I can't. Mark and I were sitting there one day, and it says, above everything, how did I miss this? And I hope I'm not the only one in the room. But it says, above everything, we had to, we must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. And Mark looked me dead in the eye, and he said, Charlie, what do the words above everything mean to you? And I was like, well, I guess, you know, paramount importance. And he goes, isn't it funny that it doesn't say above everything we got to stop drinking vodka? It turns out, Vodka, when I say I was working a program like the, like the problem was alcohol, seems logical for a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. This is a complete side note, and it doesn't have anything to do with anything. But am I the only one that came in and thinking when you heard about a 12-step program to quit drinking that we'd probably quit around 11, you know? I mean, but no, we come in, and they're like, Boom! Now let's get started. You know, and it's the biggest bait and switch program in the world. You know, we get you in here and we go, man, you got a drinking problem. You got a bad drinking problem. And it's really hopeless. You know, you got a mind that's going to, you got a body that can't drink successfully. Every time you take a drink, it's going to trigger this, this compulsion to drink more. And it's really a big problem. Not your biggest problem. You know, <laughs> You also have a mind that's going to convince you to take another drink every time, every time, every time. Really sorry. Try to have a nice day, you know. <laughs> but we pound into this guy that he's hopeless and it's this terrible situation and that sort of thing. And then once we get in, and now that you know you got the hopeless condition of mind and body, you're going to need power to get out of this. You can't get over it with your own power. You're going to need God. And then once we get them convinced that they need power, I don't know why I would give a flip about a power greater than myself if I still think my power is going to get the job done. And that's why in step one, when we do that step one experience, is because if I still think my power has got a shot, uh, step three becomes kind of an academic exercise. But when I have that step one where you go, oh my God, 
if I got it the way you guys describe it, I got no shot. And everything you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. Explains a lot of the reasons why when I would start drinking, I could never control it. And when I would swear to God I'm never going to drink again, I would drink again. A is not for people that can make up their mind to stop drinking and pull it off. A is for people like me that swear to God I'm not going to drink again, and I drink again. And I drink again, and I drink again, and I drink again. So now we establish this need for God, and, and, and then we go, oh, and by the way, you don't really have a drinking problem, you know? <laughs> it's like, what? You know, it's like, no, turns out it's selfishness and self-centeredness, you know? <laughs> Alcohol was the only thing I'd ever found that would ease the discomfort of a life based on selfishness and self-centeredness. And it describes why when I quit drinking, I go nuts and I get jumpy. And all of a sudden, I think that guy gave me a look. You know, or, or I mean, you know, or people in traffic, or my boss is a dumbass, and and uh, and my coworker, you know, and before long, that mental obsession gets like, well, you know, so. But now we find out that it's really all about God, and 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 what's funny is I need God, but in my sobriety, I've come to crave getting closer to Him. You know, I mean, there's there's so much of my life now where I go, I wish I'd started earlier. I wish I'd examined some of this stuff sooner because now I just, you know, I want, I want to get closer and closer and more unblocked and that sort of thing. Some of you may know a little bit about the health challenges that, that we've been up against. And uh, oh, about a year and a half ago, Katie and I went to the State Fair of Texas just to get a corny dog and walk around. And we signed up in this little booth for a CT scan. And three weeks later, we went to this little hospital. And they called two days later and they said, Mr. Parker, you have a sizable mass in your liver. I'm like, what? And they go, yeah, it's 15 centimeters. And I was like, my God. And they went in and they had this, they did this resectioning of the liver and took out 60% of my liver. Miraculous discovery, clean margins, you're cancer free. And it just made such a wonderful story. I was, and then about, I only got to tell it once or twice, you know, from the podium. And then they called one day and they said, yeah. Charlie, you got some new tumors in your liver. And, uh, and so that's what we've been dealing with. And, you know, lots of doctor's appointments. Um, Katie and I have never been clo- closer. Uh, she's an amazing advocate. And you didn't live till you've seen her light into a doctor. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, I firmly believe that there's people dying every day. For, for lack of advocacy, you know, because sometimes oh, yeah. if you just took what they said, and some, I don't know about y'all, when it, but in the serenity prayer when it says, accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, everything seems to fall under courage to change the things I can, you know, <laughs> but but we've, we've been dealing with a lot of that, and and, uh, and we've been throwing everything at it that, that we can, and, you know, we've done radiated pellets, we've done immunotherapy and, and all that stuff and, and I haven't been doing nearly as many events as I used to do because it's been pretty iffy on the, on the I was surprised at the trouble I was having tonight but I haven't, I haven't been doing nearly as many talks but you know, I sure wanted to do this one, you know when because when Katie, I'm a little codependent I always want to say yes Katie's really good at saying no, and 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 she's turned down a lot of talks, and I'm like, oh man, you know, I like those, but this one, I was like, no, I want to do this one. We spoke at the first one, and we especially love the group of people in in, in Tennessee and, and at this conference, but you know, um, thank you. Um, 
Well, we got some bad news this week. And, you know, if I could pray anything for you, I'd pray that you never put these two words together, my oncologist. You know, I, I hope you don't ever have to say that. But when you go to your oncologist like we did on Wednesday, and he starts the appointment off by saying, I got some bad news. Uh, it was a tough visit in a lot of ways because they're saying everything we're throwing at is not working. And so we're going to switch you over to a medication that we hope will buy your time and keep you with your family as long as you possibly can. But I don't know what that looks like. I know it's not measured in decades. It's not measured in years. Uh, they're, they're talking months. And we've tried all holistic, so please don't hit me with that. <laughs> yeah, I've tried dog, de dog dewormer and, and, and all this stuff. And Stand on your head. But I don't know what lies ahead, but I do know this. You can develop a relationship in this program with God that will carry you and comfort you through some really tough circumstances. And I... Uh, I love God. I trust God. I really firmly believe that He's got a plan. He's got one for me. And this is part of it. I know it's, it's not the way I would have laid it out. I love where Bob talks about laying out the blueprints. If, you know, if God would just one time let me see the plans, you know. <laughs> but but um, back on uh, in those third step promises, it says we will begin to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. And I'd worked a lot with today and tomorrow, but I'd never worked with the hereafter. And uh, I really have not had a lot of fear. I'm, I'm walking into this with faith, and and I'm not going to spend whatever days are left worrying about dying. You know, it's uh, it's I love the people of Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I feel super lucky to get to be up here talking to you guys about step three. But the thing about it is, if you'd have come to me when I had 17 years and said, Charlie, what's going to change your life and set you on fire is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous coming out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have told you you're crazy. You know, because I've been in AA for 17 years. I know what this program offers me. And I barely stuck a toe in the water. You know, and so, I mean... For the new people that are here, we welcome you, we love you, we hope you stick around, and I hope that you get the gifts that I've gotten. And God has been so good to me in the last four days. You'll never hear me saying, I got a bad deal, or I got gypped, or anything like that. You know, the other day I was thinking, God, I'd like to have another 20 years. And I could just hear God go, oh, really, you'd like 20 more years? Uh, you know, I gave you 20 years since the plane crash, and you're like... And I gave you 20 years before that when I pulled you out of addiction and alcoholism. But I have a feeling when you get to the end of this 20 years, you want another 10 or 15, you know. I mean, so, so whatever it is, you know. But there's a lot of message in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for the newcomer. But the people I'm here to talk to are what I call middle management. And I'm just sick of losing the 7-year, 12-year 18-year, 25-year guys. That are, and so if you're sitting around these rooms and you're not feeling what you hear people describing this weekend, I'm here to tell you it's still available. And it's available as a result of doing the work. Get with somebody. That, I can't even tell you how many times I've met guys that have been relapsing forever. And I go, have you ever worked the steps out of the big book with somebody who's worked the steps out of the big book? And I go, No. No, you know it's like I always picture it's like you tell me you got diabetes and you go oh are you on insulin? Well, I mean not not exactly, but I go I I go to a lot of insulin meetings and and, uh, and we share with each other 
about insulin. And you know, every once in a while we'll fly in an out-of-town speaker to talk about his experience with insulin, but me, no. So get with somebody that's done this work and go through it. Because one of my favorite quotes in the big book is where it says the most satisfactory years of our existence lie ahead of us. Ask yourself, is that my current belief? Is that my current experience? And if it's not, let's get to work. I'm Charlie Parker. I'm alcoholic. <laughs>